But February is the month of love, and so we usually do a relationship series every year. So we are in the middle of a series called Relational Reboot. And this is the idea that maybe there are some things that kind of get out of alignment in our relationships, and we need to kind of bring them back in alignment. Uh, maybe we need to reboot the whole thing. Uh, those of you in the tech world, you understand that the first line of defense against any problem that happens with technology is, have you turned it off and back on again? Come on, somebody. That is how we solve all problems. I'm just giving you the secret. And so this idea behind this series is some things have kind of gotten out of alignment. Some things maybe we're putting too much resource or pressure into, or maybe we've gotten the wrong perspective about. We're trying to fix those things. And so go ahead and grab out your Bible and something to take some notes with as we study God's Word together. Of course, you can pull up the Victory Church app if you like fill-in-the-blank versions. We have all the verses and fill-in-the-blanks of the notes there, so you only have to fill in like six words all day long. And so that's my favorite way to take notes. And so if you want to pull that up, you can. I'm excited to study God's Word with you today because in part one of the series, Last week, we talked about how our identity, how we draw our identity oftentimes from the wrong places and how oftentimes that causes a crisis in our culture that too often we're looking for our identity in places that the Bible says is both both detrimental to us and death to our relationships, that we were looking for filters and how we can categorize people in the wrong ways. And we're seeing everyone in our lives as competition instead of Uh, running alongside of us. So we studied that last week. And I believe, honestly, we can't have healthy relationships. We can't have healthy marriages. We can't have healthy friendships if we see people through the wrong filter. And honestly, if we draw our identity from the wrong place, we cannot identify, we cannot relate to other people in a healthy biblical way. And so that was week one. You could check that out online if you missed it. Today, I want to talk to you about one of the biggest mistakes that we make in marriages is what I'm kind of tailoring this to. But honestly, we make this mistake in all of our relationships. And I want to kind of talk a little bit to you about the biggest mistake we make because I have made a lot of mistakes. And so I told you last week, I, last month, 10 years ago, I got married to my beautiful wife, Alyssa. And so we made 10 years, which is a comparatively short amount of time. But in that short amount of time, I have managed to make a lot of mistakes that takes people a whole lot longer usually to make. All right. I have become a pro at making just long-term mistakes in a very short window of time. And many of them I've had the opportunity to share with all of you. Because, come on, confession is good for the soul, bad for the reputation. And so I have told you lots and lots of things that I have done wrong. And most of you have usually responded with, God bless Alyssa. Just God bless and strengthen his wife. God, And, and honestly, that is a prayer you should pray. Because I told you last week how when we first got married, I had the great idea that the greatest honeymoon on earth would be a cheapskate and backpack across Europe. And like spend nothing, don't spend money on any hotel, sleep in the train stations, do all of that. And I ended up marching my bride 12 miles from one train station right to the end of the other. And she still stayed married to me. Come on, somebody. She still loves me, I think. And so it's just an amazing, amazing thing. But I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And honestly, I was just too cheap to pay for the cab. So learn from my mistakes, everybody. And and there's another, I I just want you all to know, I make mistakes on this continent as well. I just, I have that in my life. A few years ago, my son Elijah was about four years old. Uh, I had gone to Costco and bought a hundred, like, cases of water. You know when you go to Sam's or Costco and you just buy for, like, 300 people? It just kind of, you get that urge that comes over you and you buy the whole store. Well, I had bought a bunch of waters because I thought we could go play sports. And when I'm working outside, I just love having waters. And so I put them all in our fridge, a whole bunch of them, and had the cases. And so a couple of days later, I come in from outside after working in the sun. And I'm looking for a water bottle. So I open the fridge, and there's not a bottle to be found. 
And so I shout, my wife's in the back of the house and I kind of shout out like, hey, where's the water bottles? And she shouts back, I think they're in the fridge. Now I know they're not in the fridge, all right, everybody? I know, but I stick my head back in there anyways and start moving stuff around and I start to mutter. Now, anybody else a mutterer? Anybody married to a mutterer? Come on, who's honest in God's house? Anybody just, I start to, I'm like, I'm just, I know I put water where, I bought a thousand of these and where are they? I'm just muttering. And about that time with my head stuck in the fridge, I hear the little pitter patter of feet right behind me. And I pull my head out of that fridge just in time to see my son Elijah go around the corner towards the back of the house. And I hear him in the back. He said he bought a thousand water bottles and where are they? I mean, no, I had pressing things to do outside all of a sudden. I just had incredible. I don't need water anymore. I am Iron Man. I don't need any. Learn from my mistakes, everybody. All right. Pay for the cab. All right. Pay for the cab. Listen to your wife. When she gives you advice, and best of all, check your immediate surroundings before you mutter. All right, everybody, just, I have wisdom for all of you. But the biggest mistake oftentimes we make in our relationships, but especially in our marriage, biggest mistake we make is we treat our spouse as our competitor instead of our helper. And I want to talk a little bit about that today. Again, we make this mistake, honestly, in most of our relationships, we somehow get in this wrestling match for success in life. But too often times we do it in our marriages and we do this in our most important relationships that we see them as a detriment or we see them as somehow threatening our success in life. That we are constantly in this tension of competition that somehow their success comes at my expense. That somehow they're not a helper, they are competition for me in being successful in life. That it somehow comes at the cost of the person we're married to. And the world would love to put us at odds with the people who are most important to us would love to see us at odds with those who are actually called to help us, to run alongside of us, and they'd love to see them at odds with us, that we're called to run alongside of each other. And we get into this weird competition. Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says God looked at man, and he said there's no way this guy is going to be able to do it alone. There's no way this guy will find his keys, no way he's going to have a coherent thought, no way he's going to be able to do anything significant alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. We're going to have a helper. This is the picture of marriage, everybody. All right. God created it. You need to remember that. And because he created it, he gets to define it. All right. One man and one woman. God created this in the beginning and he gets to define what it is. And in that relationship, the Bible says the two become one. They make each other better. They help each other become better. You're supposed to be a helper to your spouse that says the two become one and we can run further faster than we ever could alone. And so he makes this call. He says they're reaching higher heights, assisting one another. This is the institution of marriage. But the devil wants to reduce it to this thing that creates tension or jealousy or selfishness or strife. James chapter 4 says it this way. We talked about that in our series in January. He says, do you know where your fights and your arguments come from? Now, some of you are saying, yeah, it's from this moron that I'm married to. Come on. Some of you are saying, I know absolutely I know exactly where my strife and my arguments come from. But he says, that's not it. They come from the selfish desires that war within you. Reality is all of us are born sinful and selfish. It's a natural propensity that we have in this life. There's this natural tendency to become selfish in our relationships, to become selfish in our lifestyles, become selfish in the way we relate to other people. If you've ever had toddlers in your home, you know, one of the first words they learn is mine. One of the first, before any other word, they they learn mine, mine. Every toy, whose toy is this? Mine. Whose car is this? Mine. Even though it's all actually mine, they think that it's theirs. You understand what I'm saying, everybody? They think it's mine. No, it's not yours. It's mine. 
But we come, we come born with this propensity towards selfishness in our relationships, selfishness in our things. We have this default function. We think, I want things for myself. And it says you want the things in the next verse, but you don't have them. And so you're ready to kill and are jealous of other people, but you still cannot get what you want. See, our default function is towards selfishness. And when we can't get those things, we're willing to kill. We have unexpected, we have, un, we have unmet expectations of other people. And because we have those unmet expectations, then we're willing to kill to get what we want. See, Hollywood would love for you to imagine that real life and real marriage is just rainbows and butterflies all the time, right? You just, you find Prince Charming, you live happily ever after, you eat wedding cake for the rest of your life and never gain a pound. Come on, somebody, it just... It wants you to believe that there's this, this idea, and so we buy into that, and what happens is that's not what reality actually is. That's not the actual tug and pull of a real relationship, of a real friendship, of a real marriage, of a real thing in this life. And too often times with unmet expectations, then we don't get what we want, and so it's, the Bible says we kill to get it, and we still can't get it. It says we have jealousy to get it, but we still can't get it. We have arguments to get it, but we still can't. We get into this cycle of constantly unmet expectations, and they're too high for that actual reality. And so we get into this cycle of unfulfilled expectation. And so what does it say? It says, you know, you kill to get it. We want all this stuff. It doesn't come to pass. And then we're jealous of other people. We're jealous even of our spouses. We're jealous of our friends, our coworkers. We're thinking their success must come at my expense. And so I'm jealous, and I go into this time of strife. And he says it doesn't work. It's the devil's thing. You still don't get what you want. And so now you start to argue and you fight. So you see the, the kind of steps down in this, this idea of a relationship. That we have unmet expectations has caused us to become jealous and strife. And we still can't get what we want. And so we hate and we kill. We still don't get what we want. And now there's jealousy and there's strife in that relationship. And honestly, it tears it apart. And too often times in our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our families, we're allowing the jealousy and the strife to tear us apart. We don't see where it comes from, and so we're not able to stop it. And we let this cycle continue and continue. And oftentimes, what's most detrimental, I think, is oftentimes we'll pass it to the next generation. We'll exemplify it in our relationships, and then they'll see what we're doing, and it'll just continue on and on and on. And so he says it creates this fighting and these arguments. We're doing relationships in the wrong way. And the idea behind this series is we need to reboot this thing. We need to start over. We might be putting our energy or our time into the wrong places, our thoughts in the wrong perspective. So James chapter 3 says it this way. If you have this thing going on, if this is the condition of your life, if you are jealous bitterly and there is selfish ambition, it says don't cover up the truth. So don't hide this thing. Don't pretend like it's not happening. Too oftentimes I think we do marriage therapy or we do some kind of like relationship or friendship. We try to heal the thing by just covering it up. Pretending like it's not even happening. Just kind of think. So it says, don't cover it up by boasting or by lying. It says, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. They're not what God actually designed for relationships. This isn't covering it up by boasting or lying. This isn't what God has for you. Not what God has for your marriage. Not what God has for your relationships. It says, don't do that because such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This is the reason why. This is why there is selfishness. This is why there are arguments. It says such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We're going to talk about that in just a couple of moments. But he goes on in verse 16, and he says this, For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. That word disorder literally means instability and chaos. 
And so if you are seeing instability and chaos in your family, instability and chaos in your friendships, in your relationships, most of the time it is coming from selfishness and the arguments. And it says those things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And we start to feel like we, like those people are responsible for the condition that we're in. Too oftentimes we get into this idea of jealousy and arguments and we start to think, well, I have to be selfish then in order to get what I want because it's their fault I feel like this. It's their fault I'm not having my expectations met and so now I need to fight for myself and get what's owed me. And we open the door for instability and chaos, the devil at work in our homes, in our families, in our relationships, and it is tearing us apart. And honestly, in the last few years, we've seen this happen inside of churches. I'm talking about the big C church in the world. We've seen this happen among denominations. We've seen it happen among Christians. This idea of jealousy and arguments tearing relationships apart. When we're not supposed to see as competitors, we're supposed to see each other as helpers. If you let this junk get into your marriage, it will tear your marriage apart. So we're going to talk about this first, where it comes from, and then we're going to talk about how we can fix it today. Very simple points. I'm trying to make them as simple as I can. I promise you have heard these before. But we have to put these into practice. We have to put them into practice if we're going to reboot our relationships, if we're going to see God's principles come into our marriages, into our friendships, into our families. And the Bible says that selfishness and jealousy is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So let's let's jot these things down if you're taking notes. First thing that it says that they're earthly, first thing it means is that we're too attached to the world. First thing that causes this selfishness in arguments, it's too earthly, is we're too attached to this world. And that has a tendency, honestly, to grow and to creep up into every life as believers. In all of us. None of us are immune from the effects of this. And we get so connected to the earth. We live in a wonderful place, everybody. America is an amazing country. I am so thankful for the blessings of God that he gives us. It's incredible that we get to live here. But oftentimes... It can be almost a little bit of a curse for some believers, because if you live in a third world country, right, you're doing your business in a hole. You don't know where your next meal is going to come from. It's usually a lot more clear to understand that we're not living for this earth. We're living for eternity. That, That thought makes a little bit more sense in your mind. You're thinking, thank God this is not my home. Thank God that there is a life to come. Thank God that I'm living for that and I'm waiting for Jesus to come and take me there. But too often times in America, we kind of think thoughts of like, well, I hope the Lord doesn't come back too soon because I got some stuff I want to do. I, I want to finish my house. I want to buy that car. I want to be able to, to do that thing. I want to see kind of where my career goes. I got some wonderful things going on. I, I hope he doesn't come too soon. And listen to me, everybody. It, it's okay to live life here on the earth. It's okay to have stuff. It's when your stuff starts having you that there's a problem. There's a tension and a balance that Christians live with that we leverage everything that God blesses us with to build his kingdom. There's a tension that we live with, but too often times we get so consumed with the stuff. We get consumed with the world. We get consumed with the things we have instead of honoring scripture. And maybe it's true for you too. I just know in my own life, it's oftentimes disheartening to see how often I get attached to stuff. How often I get rolled up in the things that I want or the things that I'm trying to accomplish instead of living by God's standards and God's scripture. We get too attached to the world. And unfortunately, it's revealing some things in believers that we're a little bit too attached to this world. And we need to come to grips that this world is not our home, everybody. We're just passing through. It says our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand that this life is the vapor and that life is reality. We need to understand we are living for eternity. It needs to reflect in our lives. 
But there's this temptation. The Bible prophesied about it in 2 Timothy. We'll look at that. It says it would creep into the church in end times. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. It says unforgiving without love. That's the condition of our culture today. And that can be the condition of our hearts. James says if your relationships are sideways, it's probably a sign that there's some selfishness and some jealousy going on. Honestly, if there's some strife in all of your relationships, there's only one common denominator, everybody. And that's you. And so there's probably some selfishness and some arguments. If there's strife in every relationship, in every marriage, if there's strife in there, there's a selfish argument thing that has risen in, James says, that if it's gotten sideways, it's because we've gotten earthly. We've gotten connected to the earth. We've forgotten about eternity. Second thing he talks about then, it says earthly, but then he says unspiritual. So that means we're not only connected to the earth, we're not only too attached to the world, we are also disconnected from God. We're unspiritual in our relationships. And I think the two kind of go hand in hand. It's pretty typical for us when we get connected to the earth, when we get attached to the world, to start to drift from the things of God. And you might have noticed it in your own life. When we get too attached to those things, we start to drift away from God. We start to forget about his presence and his power. We go back to that prophecy in 2 Timothy. It's not, not only would they not be good in relationships, not only would they really focused on earth, but then they'll love pleasure rather than God. And honestly, this is something that I think is one of the biggest problems in our world today. Is we, love, we, we have this false theology of hedonism. There's this worship of pleasure, this worship of stuff, this worship of what feels good. And it's been worked in. This is the mantra of modern day America. It's the mantra of our modern day world. It says that if it feels good, if it feels nice, if it's what you want, then do it. Life is short. Do what you want. Do what feels nice. Do whatever it is. Forget about God. Forget about your family. Live how you want to. Sleep with who you want to. Do whatever it is you want to do. As long as it feels good, go ahead and do it. And it's a false theology that has worked its way not only outside of the church, but inside of it too. That we have this idea, this worship of pleasure. That you can live how you want, do how you want, whatever it is that you want. But it is destroying us. There's a problem with that. You'd interview anybody who has lived their entire life like that, giving into every impulse, giving into every pleasure, deciding whatever it is I want. You will never find anybody who isn't broken and destitute and isolated and alone. That it always leads to destruction. It leads you to a place you never wanted to go. Sin will always take you further than you thought you'd go. It'll cost you more than you ever thought you'd pay. It'll keep you longer than you ever thought you would stay. I promise you, it will lead to destruction. It feels good in the moment. It will lead to destruction of everything that you hold dear. It destroys our relationships. Even Solomon said, man, I did it all. Richest man who ever lived. Wisest man who ever lived. He said, I did it all. I, I, I didn't. I had it all. I slept with them all. I married them all. I, I did it all, and it was terrible. Even goes on to say, I, I denied myself no pleasure. I, I did everything I put in my heart to do, every hobby, every pursuit, every love interest. I did everything I could possibly think of. And he said, at the end of the day, I came back to this thought that it is all meaningless. So I pursued it with everything I had, but it's the condition of our culture. It lures us, even as believers, and said, hey, if you're not happy... If you're not satisfied, if you're not, if you're not getting all your expectations met, then somehow there must be something wrong with everybody else. And you need to just pursue what you want and what you need at the expense of everybody else. The reality is we get too connected to the world. We get disconnected from God. And then back to our text, actually, we get into this place that we're operating in. It says that it's demonic. Now, this is not talking about demon-possessed, all right, everybody? So this is, there are people in the world who are demon-possessed, need to have that cast out of them, but that's not something to freak out about. 
Bible says that God's given us authority over snakes and scorpions. God has given us authority at the name of Jesus. They have to flee. So that's not something we fear or we think about. It's not something that we're supposed to live in doubt and fear, but that's not what this verse is talking about. So I'm not saying your spouse is demon possessed, even though some of you may argue with me on that point. That's not what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is the source of that selfishness and argument, the source of these dissensions is probably coming from a place that you wouldn't expect. And so I want to look at this. It says it's much different than that. It's actually that we are blinded by the devil. This idea of demonic, that's earthly, we're too attached to the world, unspiritual, we're disconnected from God. But this idea of demonic, it's the idea that we are blinded by the devil. And I promise this is happening in relationships. That this blindness has taken place. So John Diver taking notes. What happens is we really get distant from God. We forget about his presence. We forget about his power in our lives. And we get to the place where the devil has blinded us to what God's call for our relationship is. He blinds us to what that person is actually supposed to be in our lives. Our spouse, our friends, our siblings, our, our relationships. What they're actually supposed to accomplish for the kingdom of God. We're blinded to that because we get in competition. We treat them as competition instead of our helper. We go back to our text one more time, 2 Timothy 3. It says, of these types of people, they'll appear to have a godly life. And so they'll look like Christians. They'll talk like Christians. They'll act like Christians. Even on Sunday morning, they'll speak the Christian lingo. They'll say all the Christian things. But it says, but they won't allow God's power to change them. Stay away from such people. It says, these types of people, they won't allow God's power to actually change them inside. It says, they'll, they'll have all the outward appearance of being a Christian. They'll have all the outward appearance of being a believer. They'll say all the right things, but they're not actually God, letting God change them on the inside. And I think oftentimes we come scarily close to this describing us. That we like to live our lives on the inside. We like to live our lives the way we want to, but we're not actually allowing God's power to change us. We're not allowing him to live through us. The resisting God's perspective of the world. Well, I want to see, I want you to understand how does God's power change us so we can understand how we can't be these people. Romans chapter 12, it says this, in that it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. So how does God actually change us? But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. See, there's a perspective God has of the world. And honestly, when you get saved, you begin to take on his perspective. That we lose our old view, we lose our old perspective of what the world actually is, and we see it through God's eyes. That we become to follow him, his perspective. See, spiritual warfare isn't demons flying around in the sky and witches on broomsticks flying around. It says spiritual warfare is a battle that begins in your thoughts. It's a battle that begins in our perspective, in our thoughts, and how we view the world. It's a battle that begins, spiritual warfare begins in the mind. And it says, that's why it says our weapons of our warfare... The weapons of our warfare are against every knowledge and authority, every, every pretension that tries to set itself up. It says the weapons of our, of our warfare are not in the physical. The weapons of our warfare are against every spiritual thought that tries to come against the knowledge of God. And we take that captive. We take it captive in the name of Jesus because that's what we're called to war against. And so oftentimes in our lives, we begin to think, well, I just have to, I have to battle in the physical. And Kirby talked about this last month. That our battle is in the spiritual and we battle together as a church. We battle together as our family, as our spouse and ourselves. We battle in the spiritual. And too often times I think we lose sight of where the battle actually is. And so we have to have this perspective that we get of life. I told you before, it's this idea that this life is not about our life. That we're just passing through, that this isn't our home. That we're citizens of heaven, everybody. That's where we're going. And so we need to keep our eyes up and fixed on eternity. We need to remember where it is that we are waiting for our Savior to come. And I'm going to do everything I can to tell every person I can how much God loves them and how he gave his life for them. 
that they don't have to die in their sins. That's what the message of the cross, that Jesus came to pay the price for our sins, that we don't have to go to hell, that we can live forever in eternity because our freedom has been bought. That is the good news, everybody. And we're going to spend our lives spreading it to every single person that we possibly can, letting them know because we've got a new perspective on life. We know this life is not about this life, but the devil has a perspective he'd love for you to have as well. Second Corinthians chapter four, it says it this way. The devil who rules this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. He's blinded the minds of those who don't believe. The Bible goes on to say, and they cannot see. He's blinded their minds. That too often times the devil of this world has come against. We get so consumed with the earth. We get so disconnected from God that we actually get to this place that's demonic. The devil's blinded our eyes. That we can't see what the gospel actually is. We can't see what our role in the life of this is. We can't actually see what God has for us. We're blinded by the things that we're too attached to. It's destroying our relationships. And so we grow distant from God. And we get the wrong filter as Christians. And as we start to see our relationships through that wrong filter, then as even as Christians, we start to say things that are lies. We start to say things like, well, this marriage was just doomed from the beginning. Well, that relationship can never be repaired. Well, that, that relationship I have with that coworker or that friend, that God could never do anything there. That person that's too far gone, they could never be redeemed. We start to say these things because we become blinded to the power of God. We become blinded to what God has called us to do on this earth. We begin to say things like, well, I won't even share my faith in that scenario because I don't think it'll do anything. We become blinded. And so oftentimes it becomes become earthly and unspiritual that we get to this place of demonic, that the devil's blinded our eyes. We begin to think, well, there's no solution to that. Or we begin to go scorched earth on every relationship in our life. We think that's the solution, and it's not. The devil's blinded us. God wants to do a miracle in your life. He wants to do a miracle in your relationships. And so we have to understand that. We'll talk about then what does it mean to then, if we're going to leave this behind, this earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, what does it mean for us then to live lives and to have relationships that actually honor God? And so we're going to do that in the moments we have left. Philippians chapter 2, give you a couple of practical things. I told you you've heard them before, but we have to put these into practice. I promise you that the deep things of the Bible are not hard to understand. They're hard to do. And so we got to put these things into practice. Watch this in Philippians. It says, when you do these things, do not let selfishness or pride be your guide. When you are living your relationships, when you are in the world, when you are part of the church, when you do these things, don't let selfishness or pride be your guide. The world's saying, don't let what the world has for you to do, don't let that be your guide. Why? Because it doesn't work. Instead, be humble and give more honor to others than to yourselves. Do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. Three very simple things. Number one, first thing we have to do, it starts with humility. We have to be humble. Jot it down if you're taking notes. We have to be humble. The problem with humility is oftentimes we embrace the wrong definitions of what it means to be humble. See, we think to be humble, most of us think that we have to somehow think less of ourselves, this self-deprecation. Well, I'm just, I'm not a very good person. I'm just, I'm not a very good husband. I'm just not a very good wife. I'm not a good father. I'm not a good mother. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not very smart. I'm just not a good employee. That's not humility, everybody. That's garbage, all right? That's just, that's what that is. That's the devil trying to work in your life. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You understand the difference there? Humility is saying, I am not the, the end-all, be-all to the universe. I am not the place I run to for every answer that I need. I am not the answer to everything. Humility is understanding and thinking of yourself less. Not putting yourself down in every situation that you can think of. It's just thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. 
That's what humility actually is. And the word, the problem with that is too oftentimes in our world, it's overdone this idea that we are an end to ourselves. The world would love you to think that you are the main character of your story. And Disney has done an amazing job at this, by the way. I don't know if you are a parent, you have seen every Disney movie 150 times, right? You can quote every single character. You can do the voices with every single, we are, we are an acting class to our own. All right, everybody, I understand that. But Disney's done an amazing job, and it's incredible to see, honestly, over history, over the last few thousand years, how culture has changed in where we go for our answers to the life of why am I here and what am I supposed to do? Because the world would love you to look inside of yourself and say, what do I feel like and what, what inside of me is who I'm supposed to be? Disney would love for you to say, well, you have this beautiful story, and you shouldn't let anybody around you limit your capacity or your potential, and that message is amazing. You shouldn't let anybody limit your capacity and your potential. But also on the flip side of that, the world would love for you to go for answers inside of yourself for every question that you have because they want to set you up as a God unto yourself. That somehow God is only as, as infinite or as finite as your own four walls, that yourself in your mind, that that's where every answer comes from. Listen to me, everybody. I don't want a God as small as I am. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want is a God as small as I am. But they want to set you up as a God unto yourself to be completely self-consumed and selfish about what we want and what we want to create. That's not what God says. That's not God's plan for your life. I know the plans I have for your life, says the Lord. It's his plans, not our plans. And I think sometimes we get that twisted a little bit. I think sometimes we, we get it in our minds that if you just come to Jesus, he'll make all your dreams come true. That's a false gospel, everybody. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus is the grease that makes your dreams work. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that that's, what, that's why we come to Jesus, that he'll somehow make all of our dreams come true. No, you come to Jesus and he will kill you and then resurrect you to the life he has called you to live. He will resurrect you to the life he has called you to do. You know what history is? And it sounds a little bit cliche, everybody, but history is his story. That we are all supporting cast in his story, that the entire Old Testament points to the cross, the entire New Testament points back to the cross, that you and I are just supporting members in the story that's all about Jesus. And we have to find our place in spreading the gospel and building the kingdom. We have to share our story looking back and saying, how do I fit? And if you'll grasp that, you'll understand that this life is not about our lives. Paul understood that. Watch this in Galatians chapter 2. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. And I myself no longer live, but Christ who lives inside of me. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. He said, when I got saved, it wasn't the fulfillment of all of my dreams. No, it was the death of those because I was now supposed to live the life God has called me to live. And I promise you there is more fulfillment in that life that God has called us than a hundred lives in us trying to fulfill ourselves. There's more fulfillment in what God has created us to do. But he goes on to say, Christ who lives in me and the real life I now have, the actual life within this body is a result of my trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew it's not about my life. And the false gospel of modern Christianity is give your life to Jesus and he'll make all your dreams come true. It's a false gospel. He wants to resurrect you to the life he's called you to live. You've got to die to the dreams that you have. You have to die to the plans that you are making and say, Lord, I'm open to what you have to do. I suppose that's right. I suppose that's... <laughs> it's about his dream, everybody. And you and I have to find our role in bringing Jesus to a world that's hurting and lost. Every day, Ben wakes up and wants to be selfish and jealous and a jerk. And every day, we got to kill him again. Every day, we got to die and then be resurrected in Christ. Every day, we have to die to ourselves that Jesus can live through me. It's what humility looks like. 
looks like surrendering. Second Chronicles says it this way. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. He says, if anybody, we recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that we're not the end all be all. We recognize this is humility, that we don't have the answers to it all, that God is the source, that God is the, the actual overseer, that it's his plan, his life that we're living out. We'll recognize that, he says, and we'll turn from our wicked ways. We'll humble ourselves and pray. He says, we recognize I'm not self-reliant. I'm not self-dependent. All I have is dependent on him. He says, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. I'll touch their nation. I'll do a mighty work. I'll have my presence come. I'll touch your church. I'll touch your family. He said, I'll do a blessing. I'll do a miracle. He says, if you'll get to that place, you recognize I don't have all the answers to be humble. Then number two, he says, give honor to others. So we're going to be humble. Then he says, give honor to others more than to yourself. Number two is to give honor. Simple principles, but these combat the lies of the enemy that creep in. So we're going to be humble, and then we're going to give honor. Don't be jealous. Don't be selfish of your wife, your friend, your husband, your coworker. Jealousy and arguments, that's not what we're going to live our lives allowing to control us. It says we're going to be humble, and then we're going to give honor. That person that we're married to, they're supposed to run alongside of us. We're supposed to give them honor. So give honor. When we do that, the Bible actually means we give weight. To give honor means we give weight to who they are. We give weight to their opinions. Romans chapter 10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Honorly literally means to give weight or to give value to someone else. That we're going to begin to give value to the other people in our lives. And honestly, this is one of the hardest things to do because our culture, we as a whole, are working overtime to devalue and dishonor every opinion and every person in our lives. We're working overtime in our own lives to devalue every single person, everything they say. And oftentimes it works itself into our marriage and it will kill your marriage. We are called to honor our spouse, to give weight to the things that they say. And the Bible teaches us the opposite of the world. It says we're called to give honor. We're called to give weight. And honestly, I have learned in 10 years that the voice of the Holy Spirit sounds eerily similar to the voice of my wife. Come on, somebody. And if I had learned that sooner, it would have saved me a lot of heartache in this world. It would have saved me. And I am working on it, everybody, but I am not there yet. But I am working on it. And it has saved me time and time again. We need to give honor and weight to the voice of our spouse. We give honor and we give weight to the voice of those relationships that are dearest to us. It says give honor more to them than to ourselves. So we're going to be humble and then we're going to get honor. I tell you, we got to change our perspective of relationships And then he concludes with this thought. He says, don't just be interested in your life, but be interested in the lives of others. And as we close, single people, I just want to give a little bit of an aside here. It's not part of the message. I just want to tell you. But this verse, it says, don't just be interested only in your own life. And so there's a double message to that thing because there is a part of you that you are a person to yourself. And so if you're single today, if you're looking for a spouse or you're trying to, you know, kind of test the dating waters, if you're in that place, I want you to understand that you are also a person and called by God to yourself. And you don't have to give up that identity just so somebody will love you. You don't have to sell out to who you are in Christ just so somebody will pay attention to you. That you do have a life to live, that you should be building up and seeking the Lord right now before you ever get into a relationship. You should be becoming the person God has called you to be and you don't have to sell out just so somebody else will love you. That you have this identity. Don't just be interested. Don't be interested only in your own life. But then it goes on to say, but be interested in the lives of others. Third thing, jot it down if you're taking notes, that marriage is number three, to be a servant. That we need to be humble and we need to give honor. But then we need to be a servant. 
We need to serve others. Think about how you can bless and serve others. Think about how you can make a difference in the lives of others. Think about how you can actually help others go further, faster in the calling God has for them. I heard a quote from a pastor who's gone on to be with the Lord now, but he said, I don't want to do anything great in life. I want to see other people be great. He says, I want the greatest success I have in life to be somebody else's. And if we would live our lives with that perspective, that I'm not trying to do something great in life, I'm trying to help my spouse be great. I want to see my friends be great. I want to see my family and my kids be great. They're not my competition. My kids are not my competition. I want to see them excel and be great. My spouse is not my competition. I want to see her become everything that she can be in God and in Christ Jesus. We want to see this in our friendship. You see your relationships. You say, I'm not here to make myself great. I'm here to make others great. And I promise you, your relationships will become what Christ has called them to be. That we should be humble. We should give honor. And we need to be a servant. We need clarity in our marriages. We need clarity in our relationships. John 15 says the greatest love a person can show is to die for his friends. You begin to live this out. You begin to live your entire life. You say, I give up my life because I want to make others great. I give up my rights. I give up my, my dreams. I give up my thing because I want to make them. I want to see them fulfill themselves in Christ Jesus. Say, I give up all my things. You will begin to live out this calling. The greatest love you can give is to give your life. We need this in our marriages. We need this in our relationships. To learn to be a servant. Let's commit together. Just as a church, those watching online, all of us, let's make that commitment. That Man, I'm going to begin to seek out ways I can give honor in my relationships. I'm going to begin to seek out ways that I can be humble in how I live. That I'm not the end all be all. And I'm only here to point people to Jesus. And then say, let's me find opportunities this week that I can be a servant. Every head bowed, every eye closed today. Father, I just thank you for every marriage in this room, every relationship represented here. Father, every friendship, God, every family member. Lord, I thank you that you have given us these relationships as blessings to us to help us and for us to help others. And Lord, I just want to pray that you would bless them, that you would give us the right perspective of what those are, that they're not competition, but that we're called to help one another grow. Before we pray to end this service, I want to talk to those of you who might be here or watching online and you're far from God today. And I would tell you that there's no way that you could put these principles into practice in your marriage, in your relationships, no way you'll begin to love them as you are called to love them if you are far from God yourself. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. And if you haven't stepped into that, received the love of Christ in your life, there's no way you can love your spouse in a biblical way. That you can be all God has called you to be. And so right now, we have to get that relationship right first. So if you say, hey, I'm far from God. Maybe I was close to him at one time in my life, but I've drifted. Maybe you pursued earthly things. Maybe you pursued the wrong things. And you drifted from God. Or maybe you say, I've never been close to him. I've always felt like God was a million miles away. Wherever you are right now, I want you to hear this, that God still loves you. That God still wants you. And I don't care what you've been told about him. He's not waiting to drop the hammer. He's not waiting to judge you. He wants to rescue you from where you found yourself. He wants to set you free. And I promise you, it is never too late to run to Jesus. It's never too late. But if you say, that's me, I want to surrender my life right now. It starts with a prayer. 
And it's giving over lordship of your life. It's saying, I don't want to live to my dreams and my plans anymore. I want the life you have for me. But if you pray that prayer, if you surrender your life, I promise you he'll make you brand new. I promise you he'll give you a new perspective of what this life is actually about. He'll give you the power to live out in the Holy Spirit, to love your spouse, to begin to treat the world how they should be treated. And so we're going to pray that prayer. It'd be my honor to lead you in salvation today. I'm not going to make you stand. I'm not making you come to the front. I'm not looking to embarrass you in front of everybody. Right now is a decision between you and your Savior. And there are other times to go public with that decision, but right now is when you decide in your own heart, am I going to live for Jesus or am I going to go my own way? But if you want to make that decision right now, we're going to pray with you. It starts with this prayer and we'll all pray it out loud. Nobody prays alone. But if you want to pray that prayer, if you're watching at home, you're in the room, say these words, say, Jesus, save me. I repent of all of my sins, of all my mistakes. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life in Jesus name. Now, every head bowed, Father, I thank you for every person here, for every relationship, for every incredible marriage. God, we thank you there is nothing beyond repair. We thank you there is nothing beyond hope. We thank you you are doing a miracle in the midst of our relationships and in our marriages and in our families today. God, I pray, Lord, that your power would come upon us, that you would give us through the Holy Spirit the power, Father. Lord, the power to remain humble, to treat others as we'd want to be treated, to be a servant, to give honor. I thank you, Lord, that you would touch every marriage today. That the good ones, God, you would make them great. Father, the ones that are in trouble, we thank you for restoration. God, as we enter a relationship without jealousy or selfishness, with humility and honor, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to remain servants. That you would bless our relationships. And we thank you for all that you're going to do. We thank you for restoration. And we thank you for the miracle that you'll give us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, can you put your hands together for what God has done today?